Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're going to be remembering renowned folklorist Barry Tolkien today. He spent nearly 20 years at Utah State University as professor of English and a folklorist, retiring in 2003. Uh, he passed away last year. Um, and those who remember him say he was charming and funny. Uh, sparkle in his eye, they say. Gained international prominence as a folklorist and director of USU's Five Folklore Archive. Considered one to be the world's expert on Navajo folklore. And uh, he loved his students. Uh, reading an article uh, here at uh, for College of uh, Humanities and Social Sciences, Janelle Hyatt's uh, writing this, and uh, she quotes Lisa Gabbard uh, as his student. She says when she was a graduate student, uh, he filled a van with folklore students, ferried them to a conference in California. And Lisa Gabbard says, I just remember being so impressed by that. It was sort of beyond my comprehension that a professor would load up a bunch of students and drive with them and spend all those hours. That was just fun, she said. So we'll be remembering Barry Tolkien and uh, hope to have your memories as well. UPRaccess at gmail.com. UPRaccess at gmail.com is the place to go. 800-826-1495. 800-826-1495. I'd like to talk about uh, Barry Tolkien, the folklorist, first. Uh, I don't know, Randy Williams, what's the big deal? Why are we, why are we spending an hour here on on Barry Tolkien? Barry Tolkien was a, uh, an amazing scholar. That is true, but I think the humanity of Barry Tolkien is actually he reached down to the one, the individual, continually. I know personally, he and his wife Miko often would meet students at the bus stop, and they would stay at their home for a week, sometimes longer. I know students who had family tragedies, and Barry would inevitably slip them $50, $100 to help them. I know students who were contemplating dropping out, just overwhelmed, and Barry would take them to lunch. And I know personally, me, um, I was at an American Folklore Society conference many years ago when I had small children, and it was over the Halloween holiday, and I was really pretty sad and Barry saw that, sensed that and said let's do this and we went down with some other folklorists, um, Tom McKean and just he took my mind of it and it's such a simple thing. Now I know a lot of um, professors or teachers do those kinds of things but Barry did it in a way that uplifted you, helped you stick into your discipline helped you with really incredible ethical um, considerations and frankly he was fun yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that too. I took a class or two from him. He'd bring his guitar in. Oh, I remember yeah. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I should introduce my guest. That was Randy Williams uh, from uh, USU Special Collections and Archives. Thank, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. Lynn McNeil from USU English Department, a mm-hmm. folklorist, indeed, and a student of Barry Tolkien. Yeah, and uh, Kazuko Tolkien, uh, his daughter. Yeah. Thank you. Good thank, morning. Thanks for coming in. So, Lynn McNeil. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I was, I was I was on that van. That, you were, you were yes, in that van, okay. That Barry packed with students and drove through a blizzard in um, Donner Pass in California. And I remember all of us inside the van, faces pressed against the window as Barry's out there, I'm sure, swearing to himself, getting, you know, wave after wave of slush sweeping over him as cars go by trying to put chains on this 15-passenger van. Um, that level of dedication was not lost on any of his students. And... And he really, he didn't just want us to become academics. He wanted us to become people who appreciated other people. And that was just infused in everything he did. It was in how he taught and how he wrote, but it was in all these other details. That same trip, as we drove across Nevada, we were never allowed to eat fast food. We had to find a mom-and-pop diner (laughs) wherever we were. And I remember driving this van through back roads circuitously around Battle Mountain, Nevada, until we found a little local diner where we were finally allowed to eat lunch. Um, We weren't allowed to listen to the radio. If we wanted music, we had to sing it. Um, And that was just such a different experience for how to do a road trip, which from, you know, my past had always been as expediently as possible in a McDonald's on the side of the road and tuning out with your headphones on or something. Um, And that just really exemplified that the impact that that he had there. It was it was an academic education, but also an education in, in being a good person. Uh, this might be a good time to bring in uh, one of our sound clips that we've prepared. This one's labeled Oral Traditions, 
This is from an interview that uh, Barry Tolkien gave uh, to my colleague Lee Austin about the time his book Anguish of Snails came out. Um, and so he talks a bit about... Uh, I, I, I've been uh, in preparation for this program, went back and listened to a few things. And one thing is very clear, he, he had little patience for kind of the stuffy, uh, you know, academic side of things. He wanted to be with the people, right? He wanted to... to, to Get the oral traditions, the, the stories, the you know, and whatever red tape, bureaucratic or academic red tape you had to cut through, you wanted to get to that. Let's hear this. This is Barry Tolkien. You also write in here a lot about oral traditions. Yeah. That's the part that I, in many ways is the part I like the most. Mm-hmm. I've, I've been mostly treated to oral traditions among the Navajos because that's what they like to do all the time in the evening and the wintertime is tell stories. And uh, usually the story will objectify something, make it a work of art that reflects something that kids might be worried about or that might be thinking about that can be uh, remedied in real life. And for the adults, its uh, its subtlety is that it has several levels of meaning that don't all come out at one time. I, I like the oral tradition mainly because it it comes out in kids' books among among art people, Mainly because people don't understand the the real meaning of it. If you go to uh, if you go to an evening, if you go to an evening of storytelling, you you get the kids listening to one level, you get the grown-ups listening to another level of the same story, and you get uh, conversation afterwards in which the whole thing is discussed, and it's it's incredibly complex. And so I wanted to. Mention I just scratched the surface in that chapter, but I wanted to mention that oral tradition is more for, is more than for kids. It's just one level is for kids. And because it isn't written down, uh, if the stories didn't have meaning, they would cease to be repeated. Oh yeah, they they wouldn't make any sense at all. They have coyote doing things that coyotes don't do, and so if, if you tried to figure out coyote from that, and coyote dies at the end of every one anyway, comes alive at the beginning of every next one, you'd think, oh, this doesn't make any sense. This doesn't explain any coyotes that I've ever seen. But it, it's a story of human weaknesses, and so you try to see why people made decisions and what happened to them when they made them. It doesn't have anything to do with coyotes at all, except on the kids' level. On the kids' level, it's meant for entertainment? Yeah. Well... Or, or instructive or cautionary. Yeah, that sort of thing. That, that's the irony is that they're not told in the summer, so I can't give any examples of them. Yeah. Except I've, I've given, I've made a lot of examples like this, uh, and my friends don't like it. My friends who are folklorists, because I'm a folklorist, and I should do it the way the folklorist does it. But I've learned enough about the Navajos to know that if they will tell me more stories, if they know that I'll stick with their customs, than if I go with ours, so I stick with theirs. There's Barry Tolkien talking to my colleague, Lee Austin. That's the late 90s. And uh, it's, you know, I, I didn't know him all that well, but it's great to hear his voice. Kazuko, it's really great for you to hear your dad's voice. Really? Tell me about that. What were you thinking? It just seems so familiar growing up with all these cultures and all these people and all the students. They were like, part of my family Um, we had people coming in staying with us my whole life from all over the world and so I was accustomed to this it's really nice to uh, reminisce like this Mm. Uh, open house sort of if a person was was by they they went to the house yeah wonderful what were you thinking Lynn McNeil it was clear all of us we're unprepared, I think, for how it would feel to hear Barry's voice. All of a sudden, we, we all were reaching for tissues all at the same time. Um, I was actually, I arrived at Utah State to be Barry's student in the late 90s. So that was the, the Barry Tolkien that, that, that I got. Um, you know, the thing I've always admired is is he when he explains the concepts of, of this discipline that he's so prominent within, um, it's not a lot of over-talking. It's not a lot of, you know, complicated theoretical ideas. He explains it in these ways that that illustrate how straightforward it is as well as how meaningful it is and, and just the ease with which he could convert people into true believers in the discipline of folklore studies is just astounding. And that just came through listening to, to him talk to Lee Austin. Mm-hmm. 
Randy Williams, you uh, talked to us, you know, a fairly lengthy conversation, and uh, people can find this at, uh, I guess, Special Collections and Archives. Right. I interviewed Barry um, in 2011 three different times over many hours about his career, um, starting off as in his youth and what led him to um, folklore. I'll pause you there because that's where I want to, to start. So he, he grew up in... He grew up in, in Massachusetts. East. Massachusetts, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Cause has a much better handle on this story. But he grew up in a, um, in a, a family that had traditions, deep traditions in, in whaling and um, folk songs. And when he came to Utah State, he intended to be a forestry student. But by chance, he took a class from King Hendricks called Floating Poetry. And it basically was a ballad class. And it was apparent pretty quickly that Barry knew more ballads than than King Hendrix and anyone else in the class. And he became the star pupil and sang the songs of the syllabi and um, quickly changed his major. Yeah. So, uh, Cusco, tell me about that. The family tradition of ballads and singing? I grew up learning these songs from him singing them and us traveling a lot and collecting songs on our travels and learning them as we're traveling along. <laughs> yeah, and that came from his uh, growing up. He was he learned kind of a, a lot family of the tradition. Songs yeah. mm-hmm, from his, actually, a lot of the songs he learned from his mom. His dad's side was the whaling side, and his mom's side were... We have a direct uh, relative that was born on the Mayflower when it docked. Really? The first really? docking wow. before Plymouth. Wow. Very, very cool. Well, let's hear a bit of a song, and then I want to talk about the continuing tradition. This one's labeled Song, because I, I didn't get the title of it. This is <laughs> this is uh, from Memorial Service for, for Barry Tolkien from December of last year. It was pleasant and delightful on a bright summer's day. The green fields and the meadows, they were buried in hay. And the blackbirds and the thrushes sang in every green tree. And the larks, they sang melodious at the dawning of the day. And the larks, they sang part of the song and uh, Kazuko that's you leading the yeah yeah wonderful <laughs> good good job and, and who else is singing I, I was there you were there well, okay. yes and a group that has been how long has that particular group been singing together since since 2002, 2002. yeah does that continue it does actually um, we sang at Barry's house for a long time and then when his health was failing we sang at various care facilities and now we sing at my house on Tuesdays and a few other folks who volunteer to, you know, take us occasionally and let us sing in their living rooms instead. And the spirit of it lives on. So what uh, what kinds of songs do you sing? We sing, I would say, my entire repertoire is 
gained from Barry almost completely. Um, I did not grow up singing at all. I was um, self-identified as a an absolute non-singer. And Barry was always sort of mystified by this. And he would say, you know, well, what goes wrong? I mean, he knew I couldn't sing. Um, and when I came back to Utah State University after being his student and going on and, and doing some more education and then coming back and teaching here, I began attending the singing group. And I remember very clearly the first time I, I sang a song. It was like a year in. Um, and it was a a very moving experience for me, I think for Barry as well, which yeah. was cool. Um, but sea shanties, cowboy songs, local Utah folk songs, anything anyone wants to bring. We'll have occasional guests from out of country who bring a song from Germany or from Japan, and and we welcome all. What do you get out of it, do you think? Why, why is it continued? Whoa, that's a big question that I think everyone might answer differently. I want to know how Cause answers it too, but I think for me, the I've never had never experienced a real traditional singing like this. And, and I remember from early on attending this group, one of the, the focuses is that everyone sits in a circle and sings into the middle. So on a stage, it's a little bit different, you know, maybe a half circle facing the audience. But this idea of everyone singing in with each other and sort of co-creating this experience and taking turns leading, but, but it's not a solo performance. It's, it's something that's really collaborative and, and something's being created that you can't do on your own. And even before I was capable of joining in really and singing, I knew I was experiencing something truly, truly special. And the, the few times that I've been present when this group is sung for other people, whether in a performance or maybe at an academic conference, um, where guests have been invited, I think everyone can always tell that something really, really magical is happening. Cusco, what uh, first question? What what do you get out of it? I I think it just keeps my 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 world alive um, by participating in such a a wonderful experience that I've been a part of since I was a baby. Yeah. What, what do you think your dad got out of it? Why was so important to him? Uh, I think a lot of the the same um, keeping ties with each other, and um, it's a way to communicate uh, without without speaking, um, even sometimes without singing. There's conversation in between. There's joking and laughing and. Uh, in the past, when he could still play his guitar, they, we called him Sip and Sings, and <laughs> uh, a lot of people brought instruments, and uh, just a, a, a creation of a great experience together as good humans. Yeah, yeah, as humans, yeah. I remember Barry saying once that, um, I think we were singing Rolling Home, which was a song he learned from his dad, is that right? Is that where that song came from? Yes. I, I remember him saying that singing these songs brings the people who he used to sing them with into that space so that people who are no longer with us are there when the songs that we once sang with them are now being sung. And I always, that stuck with me. That's an important continuum. You work with this, Randy Williams, right? right. You do, I guess, is one purpose why you do the recordings you do. Exactly. You know, it's so interesting listening exactly what um, Len and Cause are talking about. In the moment when you play those songs for us, the three of us are back in December when that event happened. And each of us have a memory of that event. And then all of those songs, each of us have memories of other times we've sang those songs or watched Barry sing those songs. And I couldn't help but think how each of us in our own lives, when we take it to the larger perspective of folklore, it does, as Cuss said, grounds us in something much bigger than ourselves. And I think we've always, you know, as folklorists, we talk about the beauty of the the singing or the spoken word of what we do, where your ear is as old as your grandfather's voice or your grandmother's voice. And I think with singing, that is so true because it viscerally transports you places. And with Barry, he knew the beauty of that and I agree wholeheartedly with what Lynn said the magic of Barry Token was that he wasn't a simple man he was probably one of the most brilliant people any of us would ever meet but he could portray himself and not falsely but he could be at any environment he could be it with um, folks longshoremen 
He could be with the president of a university. He could be with children and convey on a level that people could understand in a very real way. That's the magic of Barry Tolkien, that he was a man of people, and he he respected people's traditions. And um, we were talking a little bit, um, you were mentioning some of his work, and especially with the anguish of snails. Um, and I would say Barry Token probably he did not love accolades. So for anyone to say he was the you know the premier scholar of um, Navajo culture, he would probably get a little uncomfortable because he would say, "Well, everything I know I learned from Yellow Man or from Helen Yellow Man or from someone else." But at the but reality, he did learn from others, and he was probably for Lynn and I and others that were his students. What he taught us is. When you work in a community, you're working with community scholars. You're not just working with an informant. It's a human being that um, transcends their knowledge to your knowledge, and that's the beauty of him. And so for my work, everything I do is trying to lay honor to that, working with communities, looking how we come together to make something, you know, preserved. And then sometimes maybe we don't preserve it. Maybe that's not right, and that's what I also learned from Barry Token. That's interesting. Uh, maybe some uh, must go against the grain as a yes, it does. <laughs> oral historian, Lynn and, Lynn and some could, some things don't preserve exactly. And you know, in our profession, um, that's what Barry was talking about in that quote with Lee Austin. He was um, he wrote a paper called the Yellow Man Tapes, and it was published in 1999 in the um, Journal of American Folk- Folklore. He also presented it at a American Folk Society meeting, and um, it basically says you honor the people that you work with. And the constraints that they place upon knowledge is the constraints you place upon knowledge. And sometimes that means it doesn't fit in an archive. There's many measures that we take as archivists today to try to um, um, make sure we can keep materials safe. And that might be only having them in um, um, Native Nation archives or having labels on them that only maybe a female can listen to that or only a male or somebody that's 14 and up or during the, um, with frosts on the ground. But sometimes it just is too unsafe, and it's just not right. And that's what we learned from Barry Tolkien. Mm. If you just joined us, we're uh, remembering uh, folklorist Barry Tolkien. Uh, he was professor of English at uh, Utah State University uh, for some 20 years, eventually retiring in 2003, uh, died last year. And we have with us his daughter, Kazuko uh, Tolkien, uh, Lynn McNeil, who's a folklorist at USU, assistant professor of English, and Randy Williams, who's with uh, uh, USU Special Collections and Archives. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to uh, well, I'll play a clip from an interview with Lee Austin. We'll get into uh, how a uh, Easterner, a New England boy, uh, ends up uh, with the Navajos, and that that would uh, really change the course <laughs> of his life. Uh, so more following this break. Tan France has made a career out of helping people get more confident as part of the Queer Eye Show on Netflix. But it's interesting, when you talk to him, you realize that that's his calling because he struggled with his own confidence when he was a kid. Oh, plus he tells me what I'm doing wrong with my jeans. It's coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International. Today at 1 on Utah Public Radio. I'm Stephen Dubner. As you've surely heard, the cost of college tuition has risen tremendously. On the next Freakonomics Radio, how one school is fighting back. The um, all-in cost of attending our school in 2021 will be less than it was in 2012. Plus a more radical and perhaps necessary approach. The school is free until and only if the students find a job that's over 40K. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Tomorrow morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We are remembering Barry Tolkien, renowned folklorist, a beloved professor at Utah State University. He died last year, and uh, we are remembering uh, his effect on many, many people uh, who came through Utah State University and many other institutions. And uh, we've talked about the uh, the ballads, the tradition of singing that still goes on every, what was it, Lynn, Tuesdays? Every Tuesday. Tuesdays at Lynn's house. Mm-hmm. So do you take people? We, we do. Or? I mean, my house is the size of a shoebox, okay. so don't right. just show up unannounced. Right. But but absolutely, we truly, truly do yeah. welcome people. 
Right. We have with us Lynn McNeil from uh, USU English Department. She's a folklorist here. Randy Williams, who's with the USU Special Collections and Archives, and Kazuko Tolkien, who's uh, Barry Tolkien's uh, daughter. Uh, let's let's uh, hear this. So we've established that Barry Tolkien um, grew up in New England um, with some fairly famous ancestors and uh, learned this ballad tradition, including wailing songs. So how in the world did he end up um, with the Navajos? Let's hear a little bit of Barry Tolkien talking about that. This is labeled Uranium and Navajos, I believe, uh, the labeling system here. This is from the interview with Lee Austin. So I I was thrown in. I'd lived with this family for well, with this with the Yellow Man family for about a year, and I was dependent on them for food and that sort of thing. And we were uh, I was helping them raise sheep, and he was helping me look for uranium, and and I, I wasn't there doing any research. And I found out more during that period of time than I have since. <laughs> it was an interesting expression. You said you were uranium mining, and you. F- essentially fell off the turnip truck. Yeah. Yeah, I was uh, uh, 19 when I came from New England. I came here to school at first. And um, after about a year of school, I was sort of upset and I I didn't feel right with what I was doing. And yet I heard all this business going on in southern Utah about a uranium rush. And so I decided to go down there. And I I just landed among the Navajos as innocent as you can imagine anybody (laughs) could be. And was immediately taken in and shown around. So, And you were quite ill at one point, pneumonia. Yeah, yeah I had pneumonia. This was after a company I worked for abandoned, it, essentially. It's an attempt to get uranium. It had gotten guilty of a couple of stock arrangements and various people had been fired. And first thing I knew of, I, I, I went to, to Bluff to get some gas and and went to get money and was no money. There was no mail from the company. And I found out with a couple of phone calls, the company headship was in the jail. So so there wasn't any money. Then I didn't have anything to do, and I moved in with this family. I wasn't trained for uranium. I wasn't trained for language. I wasn't trained to look at anything that was culturally different. I was from New England, after all. Uh, So... It was just like I turned fallen off the turn of truck. I just I was a farmer who knew nothing, and um, and yet the Navajos were very patient. And the only thing they weren't patient about, uh, they were patient, but they had fun with it. They taught me the language. When they taught me the language, uh, they would teach me the wrong phrases for things, and deliberately, deliberately to, to be funny, and uh, not show any smile when I did it. So that when I began to speak Navajo, I spoke it with a mixture of real Navajo and and figures of speech that nobody would think of. And uh, they'd, they'd look judicious and say, well, yeah, I guess a person could put it that way. And it wasn't, wasn't until a month or so later that I'd hear somebody using the real word for what we were talking about. But um, so I was a butt of conversation and a butt of humor for a long time. So that's Barry Tolkien uh, telling how he, uh, he he got introduced to the, I guess, the Yellow Man uh, family and uh, the Navajos. Uh, I don't know if somebody wants to tell me a little bit about that. And that essentially changed the course of his life, right? He, Costco, yeah, he, you want to talk about that? Um, he became a, a part of the family. They adopted him uh, as one of their own. And, yeah, he actually... Uh, because of that, he was a, a family member, so he knew he knew how he learned how to behave in the language and learned so much about the culture. He he married a, a Navajo uh, Sioux woman in that family and had a daughter, my sister, my older sister, and kept the the ties um, even after they they divorced. He and when he married my mom, we he took all of us there every year, more than once a year. We'd go to the Navajo Reservation and be with the family. Yeah. What do you think, uh, you know, I could imagine if I landed down there, I might visit for a little while, but it, then I'd leave. What What do you think attracted him so much to to that kind of life? I think the the 
culture so rich uh, with uh, uh, ceremony and and uh, song, everything, things that he recognized in in all the cultures. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I understand this story that he actually started the international club up here at USU. Hmm. So back in the black and white days, yeah, right, right, <laughs> it, when it wasn't kosher to to stick up for other cultures, he he did, and yeah, and was considered a radical for that. Yeah. That was important for him. Yeah, yes. Well, I just would add to what Kaz is saying. You know, I would think. Um, what kept Barry going back was ties that bind. He, 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 I feel like we've all mentioned this, all of us at the memorial yeah. service or the life celebration and others as, of us talking. If you were in Barry's orbit, you were in Barry's orbit, and he didn't quickly um, disassociate himself with that. So the fact that he was family with the Yellow Mans, it wasn't just for a short time while it was convenient to him. It was always till he died. And it with the family traditions, and I, I remember a colleague of ours, Hal Cannon, had the opportunity after um, years later going back with Barry, and he realized, he said, I realized how this wasn't a job for Barry. This wasn't something that he did because he was a folklorist studying a unique culture that was rich and wonderful. He did it because there were reciprocal ties, and that was important to him. And that is another beauty of Barry Tolkien. He was very reciprocal. This is really a big part of what makes him stand out, I think, as a scholar. It's the discipline of folklore studies is, is already unique in, in their approach to the people that that folklorists work with. If you look at the American Folklore Society's official statement on its work with human subjects, they say, um, which is a legal document, um, they say that, you know, we don't think of them as human subjects. We think of them as friends. And I, I love that about my discipline, that 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 recognition of people's humanity. They're not data points in a survey. They're, they're friends. They're people. But Barry took that to a really, really extreme level. And his respect for the culture that, that he worked with from the inside, not just a benevolent, you know, patronizing outsider saying, oh, I'm an academic. I'm, you know, coming in and, and studying these, these people who need to be studied. His respect came from inside that culture using that culture's own system of measurement to determine what's appropriate and what's what's not appropriate and that really is still revolutionary this is this is a thing that that folklore classes my own classes but also outside of of Utah talk about this you know the decisions he made to stop researching Navajo culture and, and stories when he was told by the people themselves that this is getting onto dangerous ground it doesn't matter if academics or non-Navajo people believe that or if that's in their belief system, it mattered to the people he was working with, and that was the end of the story for him. And that's truly, truly revolutionary. And he, uh, a little bit, uh, another place I didn't uh, get a clip on this, he talked to Lee Austin about cultural appropriation. Mm -hmm. uh, very concerned about that. Mm -hmm. uh, scornful of those who, uh, you know, understanding very little of it, were cashing in on, mm -hmm. on you know, some of the Navajo traditions. Mm-hmm. He, he had very little patience for that. He was a very kind man, but he had very little patience for appropriation of other people's culture. Yeah, but it, it, it does seem like he was uh, he he became an insider in in some ways. Um, it's illustrated by the next uh, clip here. This is the, our last clip from the, the interview with Lee Austin from the late uh, 1990s. This is labeled uh, "Stroke and Two Healing uh, Ceremonies." Uh, so at some point in the 90s, uh, he, he did suffer a fairly serious stroke, right? Cusco? In the early 2000s. 2000, oh, early 2000s. 2002. Oh, okay. Yeah. This is when he suffered the stroke, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, so this, um, let, let's, let's hear this clip. You've written a number of books and authored parts of books and a, a lot of, of publishing. I'm wondering if having the anguish of snails out is particularly satisfying. You referenced uh, having a stroke and having to go through a lot of therapy, and that was kind of an interruption in, in the whole thing. Yeah, fortunately, I, I wrote the thing entirely w with about the exception of five or six pages before I w was gone, before I w had the stroke. And so when I came out of it, they came and asked what I wanted to do with it because I had presented it for a publication before that time. And... Um, I said, well, let me let me change the end, and I changed it so 
uh, the, the ending has to do with me taking advantage of two different healing ceremonies. One, a white, where I'd go to a doctor and I'd hear about medicines that I could take all by myself and it would affect me and nobody else. And I could go to the Indians who would give me a big healing ceremony, which would involve lots of people and involve medicines which are taken by other people. And I didn't see that these two should be different, just departing from different places. The Navajo see the stroke as something that comes from outside and takes over. And so I have to try to find out who did this from outside and turn it back. Mm -hmm. And the whites think that it comes from inside and that it's um, a chain of other events. Well, that's one example of this. This book is much more close to me than most of the other books I've written. So I, I guess I have a better feeling about having it behind me. And um, I've yet, the next step is going to be to go to southern Utah and decide with the Navos what the Navos want to do about my health. And uh, it'll be either five-day, a 10-day, or a 15-day ceremony. And it'll uh, involve about 40 or 50 people. And I'll be speaking. It'll be mostly at night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it'll be totally different from a white cure. It'll And yet, it won't be secret. Anybody could come to it. If you could find it, it'd be way out in the middle of the desert somewhere, and I won't know when it will be. So, uh, in that sense, it's secret, but not because it because you're not welcome. I don't know. It seems to me what I've learned in, in life, especially delivering what the Navajos is, that there there's a different construction of things and different addition of things that that affect the human beings, and so I should take both into consideration. This is Barry Tolkien talking to Lee Austin. So that must have been the early 2000s then, mm-hmm. when this interview happened. Uh, it's interesting, uh, he, he's talking about living in two cultures, not just living in one and studying the other. He's talking about actually living as a participant in, in two cultures. Exactly. Um. And that's, uh, I mean, it makes life richer, mm-hmm. makes life more confusing. I don't know what... Uh, and what it sets a very high standard, I think, for for his students and for other folklorists who are interested in his work and following in his footsteps. It's a, a constant reminder, I think, not to take for granted what people are giving you when they are willing to talk to you about their culture or their traditions, that it might seem like a casual, easy conversation. You might meet up with someone for coffee, but but that's a, a real act of generosity that's happening there for someone to invite you in to, to say, look at the world from my perspective. And I I think that keeping that in mind, probably even for non-folklorists, is a good idea as we apprehend the world around us, recognizing when people are being generous with their with their time and their thoughts with us, and, and valuing that yeah. is important. Kazuko, he's 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 anticipating there. It's it's not patronizing in any way. He's he's doing Western medicine, but he really is, you know, hopeful about the the Navajo healing ceremonies as well. Yeah, they they were uh, incredibly uh, rich with the. The healing, um, because in, in Navajo culture, when we have a ceremony, it it the healing is for for everyone, not just just the individual. Yeah. So all everybody, all, all of us were were being healed. Yeah. Through the whole process, which was very important to him too, realizing it, it is a bigger picture rather than just individual. I found that very interesting. The perspective of the illness comes from the inside versus the illness comes from the outside. Very central to the to the culture. Uh, before we go to break, I just want to uh, I'll recount one story that he told in this interview with Lee Austin about culture differences. He was talking to teachers who were teaching uh, Navajo children, and he asked them, "Have you ever been out to the visit with the parents?" Mm. And they said, "Well, we've tried, but it, it never worked." So we would drive up, and the, uh, the Navajos would run inside, uh, close the door, and, uh, and then we would just drive away. So what are they doing? So then <laughs> he, he or someone else explained to them, no, that's Navajo tradition. We go inside, we prepare to receive you with great respect, right? And and so they, <laughs> and then they were wondering why why is this car full of Anglo teachers uh, driving away? Why aren't they here to to see us? So these you know it's it's sometimes very hard to navigate the cultural differences. 
Uh, let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll uh, we'll talk more, including a, a clip from an interview Randy Williams uh, did with Barry Tolkien on the future of folklore. At at that point, uh, what 2011? That's what you yes, when you uh-huh, talked March 2011. Yeah. Um, and more. We'd love to get your Barry Tolkien remembrance as well. Remembering Barry Tolkien with his daughter, Kazuko Tolkien, Lynn McNeil, uh, USU folklorist, and Randy Williams with USU Special Collections and Archives. More following this. The direct-to-consumer market is huge, and you can buy almost anything. Razors, glasses, medical scrubs, too. So 10% of the market, right now the hospital actually gives you your clothes, right? But the 90%, they buy direct. So that's where we come in. I'm Kai Rizdahl, where the direct-to-consumer model meets hospital wear. Next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. Tom Williams is on the road again this week. I'll be joining him as part of our UPR StoryCorps team. We'll be in Vernal, working on our One Small Step project helping to bring community members together to engage in a conversation, anyone speaking about anything. You can participate by going to upr.org and signing up for One Small Step. And then join us Friday morning at USU's Uinta Basin Vernal Campus from 7 to 9 a.m. for a special meet and greet. See you there. In 2018, humans emitted more carbon than in any single year in human history. So are the consequences of our actions finally catching up with us? We're really reaching the threshold now, I think, with climate change where the impacts can actually be felt over a lifetime. Ideas on dealing with climate change. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Sunday afternoon at 2 on Utah Public Radio. What happens when common DNA brings the white and black side of the family together? For the first time. We have the same blood in us, but we have different stories. We have a similar history, but real different stories, and that's, that's kind of amazing. Discovering America's black DNA. Next time on To the Best of Our Knowledge from PRX. Sunday morning at 9 on Utah Public Radio. We've reached our last segment now on Access Utah. Today we're remembering renowned folklorist Barry Tolkien. I taught for many years at Utah State University. He had a big uh, impact um, on many people, including my three guests today. Um, Randy Williams with USU Special Collections and Archives. Lynn McNeil, USU folklorist. She's in the USU English Department. And Kazuko Tolkien, uh, Barry's daughter. Um, so let's uh, let's hear this. Uh, this is the... Uh, Future of Folklore, this is from an interview that uh, Randy Williams did in 2011 with uh, Barry Tolkien. What do you see as the um, future of folklore? Right now it's hard to say. I, you know, you read some of the recent books that have come out about what folklore is, mm-hmm. teaching folklore, and they're not even starting with the people. They start with the... It's, it's as if you start with a with a tale or something, and not the people who tell it, but the tale. I mean, they're going back a couple of notches as far as I'm concerned. And I haven't got the, the wits to tackle that. You know, I have to, it's got to be somebody else's thing. I don't know. There's, there's something wrong with it. It's, it's the it's the students. I mean, it's the, it's the professors taking over the job of t- telling people what folklore is. When in fact, it's the people who tell what folklore is. Whether it's good or bad or rough or not, they're the ones that got it, and they're there's their telling of it and their use of it that makes it, it makes it useful, you know, to the people. So I don't know. I I don't know what to think of it. I better leave that blank. <laughs> That's uh, Barry Tolkien talking with uh, Randy Williams. Uh, I don't know uh, if anybody here has an opinion Mm on what he was saying. They're very definite opinions. Oh, yeah. And I think that um, this is a big question that still lingers in folklore studies. I recently wrote a guest blog for a, a wonderful folklore blog out of the U.K. called Folklore Thursday 
um, that has an associated hashtag where lots of people internationally discuss folklore. And um, the post I wrote was about a conversation on Twitter that had taken place about what is an urban legend and is an urban legend folklore. And the discussion was amazing with some people on Twitter saying, yeah, it is, and other people saying, yeah, it's not. So I wrote this blog post saying, you know, as a folklorist, I would say, yes, it is, and it's this particular prose narrative form of folklore. But but I, I ended it by saying, but but the truth is, we're not here to tell people they're wrong about their culture. If people don't think it's folklore, I should come along and try and understand why. I mean, if you want to be an academic folklorist, you're going to have to, you know, at least be able to temporarily acknowledge, yeah, it's a form of traditional prose folk narrative but to have that discussion and say okay why you know what what is folklore to you to to the people who are the folk everyday people all of us um that that we should listen to that too and it was really funny because i got immediate pushback from the the very people barry's talking about in that interview where he says you know it's the the professors telling people what folklore is rather than the people telling us what folklore is um and several of those professors came back immediately and said no 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 you're wrong they're wrong, and you need to tell them they're wrong. So I just thought that was a, well, I mean, you know, almost 10 years later, that's a, it's it's being enacted, exactly what he's talking about. But I think his influence is there as well. So mm. we'll still have both modes of approach. We have five or six minutes left. I'd like to get uh, memories. We've told some stories. Um, any any stories you'd like to tell about Barry Tolkien, the folklorist, Barry Tolkien, the man? I have a really um, great memories of Barry after a stroke, um, and it's strange that I would bring that up because Barry was a very um, striking human. He he was very um, articulate language. He he was um, spoke Navajo, German, and English, and dabbled in other languages very well. As I said before, he was brilliant and um, sang beautifully. But I have to say, some of my memories that are most poignant to me are after a stroke. I've thought about this a lot. Um, many of us came in to, you know, at that time to help with therapy, maybe um, with helping him move his arms or legs um, to, to strengthen. And not too long after, he came back to the university. And he was diminished in many ways because he couldn't walk or he couldn't speak all the time. Things were in his head. They weren't not there, but he couldn't always get them out. And I thought to myself, he continued to come to the university. He would go to the Quad Side Cafe at noon and stay for an hour or two and visit with students. Some are folklore students, but many were not. Barry never hid away, even though I feel like maybe that might have been what thing people might have thought he would do because he was so prominent and so accomplished but he never hid he continued to be a teacher and a learner until the day he died and to me that is the most beautiful memory I have of him and I have students who would come downstairs to special collections and they say we want to talk about folklore lady down here because this gentleman Mr. Tolkien told us to he was explaining to them this beautiful rich collection that we had and he wanted them to see that he was a teacher till the very end, even though sometimes students might have to listen real carefully to what he was trying to say. To me, that is one of my most cherished memories. Wonderful. Other other stories, memories? Oh, there are, there are so many of them. I remember one of my favorite um, <laughs> moments that I had with Barry. I was working as his assistant, his, the editorial assistant for the journal Western Folklore that he was editing here. Um, this was shortly before his stroke. We were hosting a conference here, and um, we had written a letter, and I was going out to lunch, and he said, make sure you come back. This was a Friday afternoon. Make sure you come back after lunch so we can sign all of these letters that we need to send out to the people we're inviting to this conference. And, you know, I was a grad student. I got distracted. I was having fun. It was the weekend. I didn't come back at all. And, of course, Monday morning I come sheepishly creeping into the office and Barry sort of looking ominous in the doorway. And he ne- didn't look ominous often. Um, and I immediately began groveling and said, oh, I'm so sorry and whatever. And, you know, I, I can't believe I didn't come back and this is so terrible. And he just silently pointed to the sign on his door. It was just a blank piece of printer paper with a red dot in the middle <laughs> that just said, you are here. <laughs> and then he smiled and he said, it's okay. It happens. It's over. You're here now. 
And then he said, but I forged your signature, so you're going to have to have that as your signature now for the rest of this conference. It was this terrible scribble that didn't look anything like my name. So I thought, well, he got me back on that one. But he was just that that understanding, that openness. I mean, I... I clearly felt the weight of my transgression, and he had no need to rub it in. Just kind of said, yeah, it happens. Move on. <laughs> Wonderful. We just have a couple minutes left. Cosco, do you have a oh, just favorite I, story? I think uh, my favorite memory is just being his daughter, traveling so much. and I'm really grateful that I learned how to walk into a culture and recognize uh, what I'm seeing and hearing and smelling and feeling so that I could actually be a participant and not step on toes or be disrespectful. It just came easy as I as I aged, and I'm really grateful that I learned that from him. And I made him a, a made him even a better folklorist, I think, too to be that way, to be able to feel the culture. Wonderful. That's a good place to end the conversation. We've been talking with Kazuko Tolkien, uh, Barry Tolkien's daughter, Lynn McNeil, a folklorist at USU, assistant professor of English at uh, USU, Randy Williams with uh, USU Special Collections and Archives. Uh, thanks so much to all of you for coming in. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Wonderful to remember uh, renowned folklorist uh, Barry Tolkien. Well, let's uh, go out with a portion of uh, another song from his memorial service. This is uh, Shenandoah. Statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR, Logan. KUSK, Vernal. KUSL, Richfield. KUST, Moab. KCEU, Price. KUSU, FM, Logan. Also heard at upr.org.